1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins." Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead, if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. The domino effect is a situation where one event starts a chain reaction of similar events that happen one after the other in a relatively short period of time. Have you ever seen a line of domino stones fall in quick succession? It's quite a sight. In fact, every year, sponsors of an event known as Domino Day arrange all kinds of domino toppling exhibitions. Falling walls and falling pyramids and falling mosaics and falling spirals. The world record for the most dominoes pushed over by a group was set in the Netherlands. On Domino Day 2009, a team toppled 4,491,000 863 dominoes at once. Now I bring up this domino effect because Paul utilizes it here in 1 Corinthians 15. For when it came to theology, the apostle believed in the domino effect, at least when it came to the doctrine of the resurrection. 
He employs a domino-toppling form of reasoning here in this morning's text. And Paul's points make for some really big dominoes. Well, he begins here in verse 12 with a question for the believers in Corinth. Now, if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Notice the dominoes are starting to topple. If you don't believe in the resurrection of the human body, and since Jesus had a body, then you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But that's just domino number one. The toppling continues through this text that we read. And if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, the message of the gospel is empty. And if we're preaching an empty gospel, then we're guilty of lying to whom we preach. And if the gospel we preach is a lie, then our faith is futile. And if our faith is futile, then we're dead in our sins. And if we're dead in our sins, we'll never be reunited with our loved ones. And if we don't have anything to look forward to after death, then the sacrifices we're making now are a waste of our one opportunity for pleasure. Boom, 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 boom. So, if all that's true, he concludes, let's just forget Christianity. Shut down the church. Spend our offering on a big dinner at Longhorns. Well, that's exactly the conclusion that he comes to in verse 32. If the dead do not rise... Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And there you have a summary of this morning's passage. If there is no resurrection of the body, then really big and monumental theological dominoes all begin to fall. Here's a similar line of dominoes that tragically topple without a resurrection. If there is no resurrection of the body, then Jesus never rose from the dead. If Jesus is dead... That means death had power over him. If death defeated Jesus, that means he isn't truly God. If he isn't divine and perfect, then he can't make a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. And if our sins aren't paid for, then Jesus can't save. And man, if Jesus can't save, there's no hope for any of us. You see, if all that's true, Christianity is a crock, and I'm just a con man. Our faith is nothing but a sugar-coated lie. Thankfully, that's not the case. For the book of Acts tells us that for 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus presented himself alive by many infallible proofs. For six weeks, Jesus kept offering undeniable evidence that he was alive. In fact, he kept dropping in on his men, helping them realize that he was not only alive, But he was never very, really, very far from any of them. Jesus is Lord, and his words are true. Now, realize Greek philosophy and Christian theology were at odds on this issue of a bodily resurrection. The Greeks taught that the human body is the cage of the soul, that man's ultimate triumph is to be free from his fleshly prison. The Greeks romanticized this idea of being pure spirit without bodily confinement. You remember when Paul was up the road in Athens explaining Christianity to the scholars on Mars Hill. They were tracking with him until he mentioned Jesus' resurrection. 
Acts chapter 17 tells us, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. You see, the mere thought of a bodily resurrection shut down any interest that the Greeks had in hearing Paul. The notion of the resurrection was just so foreign to them. Christianity, on the other hand, affirms the body's future resurrection. That our ultimate conquest isn't just freedom from the body, but a transformation of the body. Victory over death isn't received by simply escaping our human flesh. There needs to be a reshaping of our flesh. And both the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures teach that God's ultimate goal is the elimination of all sin's effects, even its effects upon our own bodies. You see, everything that sin has touched, God intends to redeem. Everything. That includes our physical bodies. Adam and Eve may have been created perfect specimens, but as soon as they sin, Eve looked in the mirror one day and she noticed a set of crow's feet right there next to her eye. Adam's first day out in the fields, he came home with a backache. Sin corrupted the human body, and a slow but steady deterioration set in. God told Adam that if he sinned, he would surely die. He died spiritually the moment he bit the fruit, but his body died slowly over the remainder of his days. That's why if Jesus' work on the cross achieves for us a complete and eternal salvation, it won't just reunite us to God, it will also resurrect our corruptible bodies. The Corinthians, to whom Paul wrote, were certainly Christians. They believed in Jesus' resurrection, but they had held on to their Greek concept of the afterlife. And like he's done throughout this letter, Paul's goal is to set the Corinthians straight. They were patterning their living according to their culture rather than the Scripture. Here their pagan environment had even seeped into what they believed. Error had doctored their doctrine. They needed to realize the importance of the resurrection. And for starters, if there is no bodily resurrection, that means Jesus is still in the tomb. You know, it's sad, but even today, belief in Jesus' resurrection in so-called Christian churches is no longer a given. A 2010 Barna poll of Christians claiming to be born again found a whopping 30% don't believe that Jesus came back to physical life after He was crucified. That's one in three don't believe in Jesus' literal resurrection. Another poll found that 26% of Christians don't believe in their own body's resurrection, that they'll have a body in eternity. Actually, one in five Christians today admit to believing in some form of reincarnation. This is astonishing to me. Today, if you talk to a Christian and want to know if he or she believes that Jesus literally rose from the dead, you have to parse it exactly. You have to be very specific. Not that he rose metaphorically to prove that we can overcome our spiritual deadness. Not that his soul somehow flew back into the heart of God. No, you have to ask specifically, do you believe the body of Jesus was crucified on the cross and buried and literally returned to life three days later, never to die again? 
Once again, the church of the 21st century bears a striking resemblance to the 1st century church in Corinth. Pagan skepticism and spiritual compromise, rather than biblical truth, was steering the Corinthian ship. Yet 2,000 years hasn't weakened the arguments that Paul appeals to here. He states in verse 14, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Paul knew without the resurrection, Christianity is a house of cards. It all falls apart. The toppling dominoes lead to ultimate despair. If Jesus isn't the Lord of life, he's just another dead guy. Like Buddha or Muhammad or Moses. Their bodies occupy a grave and testify to their mortality. Jesus' body is alive and well because Jesus is God. Reminds me of the story of a well-known German pastor named Schutz. During the Nazi rise before World War II, Pastor Schutz attended a youth rally sponsored by Hitler's propaganda machine. The speaker was railing away at the Jews. When he spotted the pastor out in the crowd, the Nazi began to mock him. He shouted, Schutz, you're a fool! Believing in a crucified dead Jew. Pastor Schutz, he jumped to his feet and he shouted so that all could hear, Yes, sir, I would be a fool if I believed in a crucified dead Jew, but I believe in the risen, living Son of God. It's because Jesus Christ is alive that our faith is not empty and that our preaching is not in vain. Paul asserts that the literal resurrection of Jesus and the bodily resurrection of all believers go together. In other words, you can't have one without the other. Notice verse 15. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. In other words, if you deny the resurrection of the body, you negate Jesus' resurrection. You're relegating to a grave. Then you turn the gospel of our risen Lord into a lie and its preachers into liars. He says, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins and the top dominoes continue to topple. Our salvation necessitated Jesus having a human body. To die for our sin, he had to be one of us. Thus, Jesus was God incarnate, or God in the flesh. He had an epidermis. Jesus had a liver and a spleen. His nose ran. His feet stunk. This week, I heard a preacher say, Jesus was both undiminished deity and unprotected humanity. Jesus was God in the fullest sense of the word, but he also had a human body, every bit like ours, even vulnerable to death. And if his body is like ours in death, then it should also be in resurrection. That means if our bodies don't eventually rise from the dead, then his didn't either. And if Jesus' corpse is somewhere lying in an unmarked tomb, then there's no hope for any of us. We might as well trash our Bibles sell off the church's stuff, split the money, then go eat some chili cheese fries and top it off with a frosted orange. If life stops at the grave, then let's eat, drink, and be merry. 
All that's left to live for is a little pleasure. And without the resurrection, neither would there be any hope for our loved ones who die before us. Paul adds, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. The word asleep here is a New Testament idiom for death. Paul is saying that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then forget about seeing your believing mom and dad again, or putting your arms around your spouse, or hugging a son or daughter that you had to lay in the grave, or being reunited with a friend. The reunions that we've imagined would all be a pipe dream. Again, watch the dominoes fall. If our human bodies don't rise, then Jesus isn't resurrected. If Jesus isn't God, our sins aren't forgiven. If our loved ones aren't in heaven, we'll never see them again. Paul sums it all up. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If there's nothing more to life than the here and now, then the sacrifices called on to live the Christian life just aren't worth the effort. If Jesus never rose from the dead, then it's true. He who dies with the most toys wins. If there's no resurrection for us or for Jesus, then we've pledged our one and only life to a losing cause. We've hitched our wagon to the wrong horse. It's best to just admit it, be an honest atheist, and grab for all the gusto. If these things aren't true. Talleyrand was the Prime Minister of France during the French Revolution. He was an excommunicated bishop of the church. Once he was approached by a friend who had tried to start a new religion. This friend believed that it would be an improvement over in Christianity. But it wasn't getting much traction. In fact, he came asking Talleyrand for advice. The Prime Minister admitted that it's very difficult to start a religion. He wasn't sure what his friend should do. He finally came up with an idea. Teleran told him, I suggest you get yourself crucified and then rise again on the third day. <laughs> the former bishop knew that all Christianity hinges on the truth of the resurrection. Hey, read the book of Acts. The reason these early Christians preached with such fervor and risked their all and sacrificed their very lives because they were convinced that Jesus had overcome death and that he would see to it, they would too, if they trusted in him. This is why Paul proclaims triumphantly in verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The fact that Jesus overcame death and rose from the grave and now dwells in heaven in the glory of his Father paves the way for you and I to follow him. The person who presents their body to Jesus, a living sacrifice, will one day see the living Lord transform that dedicated body. We'll be resurrected like Jesus. For Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of our resurrection. There was an Old Testament feast known as first fruits. On the Hebrew calendar, it occurred on the first day after the Sabbath following the Passover. In the year Jesus died, that was three days after the Passover. Since Jesus died on Passover, that means he rose again on the Feast of First Fruits. And this was fitting. Both typologically speaking, Jesus is not only our Passover lamb, he is also our first fruits. 
On that day, the Levitical priest would bring a bundle of wheat before the Lord. The sheaf of wheat was the first of the spring crop. It represented the remainder of the harvest. Thus, it was known as the first fruits. And when the priest waved it back and forth before the Lord, he was saying to the Lord that there's more to come and that it all belonged to him. This is why Paul compares Jesus to the first fruits of the harvest of souls. For Jesus was the first of many followers whose bodies would be raised from the dead. And realize there's a difference between being raised from the dead and resurrection. There were people who died and by miracle were raised to life. But realize every dead person Jesus raised died again. That's not resurrection. The resurrection we've been promised is that when we die on a day yet future, our mortal bodies will be raised again in immortal form. Our resurrected body will be immune to decay, will never die again, will no longer be susceptible to death. Verse 21, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, Even so, in Christ, all shall be made alive. You see, the bodies of all those who have been born only once share the destiny of their father, Adam. They die, then they rot, either through burial or through cremation. Burial takes 20 years, cremation takes 20 minutes. That's the difference. But people who have been born twice, who were born physically but have been born again by the Spirit of God, In Christ, they're destined to be like their leader, Jesus. And like His body, our bodies will live forever. In His kingdom, we won't be disembodied spirits. We'll have a body for eternity. Right now, the believer's corpse or ashes might abide in the earth, whereas his or her spirit is fellowshipping with the Lord in heaven. Paul says so in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8. There he speaks of death for the Christian as being absent from the body and being present with the Lord. But why this delay? Why have some believers waited now 2,000 years for their transformed body? Their spirit's with Jesus, but their body's still in the ground. Why don't we just die and then head right for the body fitting? Why didn't that happen? Well, Paul explains in verse 23. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. See, there's a God-devised order to these things. Jesus was resurrected first. It happened at his first coming. But our bodies will experience the very same metamorphosis when he returns for the church. 1 Thessalonians 4 speaks of that day. For the Lord Himself will descend with a shout. Yeah! Maybe. I don't know what it'll be like, but you'll know it. And with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, do, 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 do. Something like that. And the dead in Christ will rise first. That's because our, their bodies will have six feet further to go than us. Or it's because their ashes have been scattered and they need a little reassembling. Hey, that's easy for God to do. Both of those things are easy for God to do. 
then we who are alive and remain, and listen, that could be you, it could be me, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. What an incredible day that'll be. And I'm praying it'll come soon. And then Paul says in verse 24, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The Bible teaches that after the church is raptured, God goes one more round with sinful men. For seven years, or what the Bible calls great tribulation, he slugs it out. God puts evil on the ropes. The knockout blow comes from Jesus. At the end of God's judgment, Jesus returns, a mighty warrior. On the back of a war horse, he triumphs over his enemies in a single charge. He establishes his kingdom on planet earth. And I love this phrase in verse 25. He must reign. He must. For justice to be served, for sin to be punished, for death to be defeated, for all God's promises to be fulfilled, for the king to declare his victory over his enemies, and for Jesus to be who he said he is, he must reign. Realize what makes this life so difficult is that the battles are never really over. Our enemies are only repressed. We know that after we're done with one trial, another is lingering, looming on the horizon. This is life in a fallen world. And this is why for there to be real peace on earth, all God's enemies have to be put under Jesus' feet. He must gather all the culprits, all those demons big and small. He must step on all the loose ends and get everything under His feet, under His jurisdiction, so that life for us won't unravel again. At His first coming, salvation was on Jesus' mind. At His second coming, He's planning domination. Gentle Jesus will crush all His enemies. He'll take kings by the scruff of the neck and hold them under His big toe. In John chapter 5, Jesus spoke of every person's bodily resurrection, but He described it as happening in two phases. He said, the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Everybody's body will be resurrected. Some will be to life, others will be to damnation. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, we learn that a thousand years separates these two resurrections. The believer's body is raised before the great tribulation so that when Jesus wins his final triumph, we'll be able to rule with him. But after his millennial reign, these thousand years, we're told Hades will be emptied and the bodies of the souls that died without Christ will also be resurrected, but they'll be tossed into the lake of fire. That's why verse 26 tells us the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Revelation 20 verse 14 charts this on the timeline. Following Jesus' thousand-year reign, we're told, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. But I want you to notice here what he calls death. 
Death is still our enemy. Don't buy into the modern mumbo-jumbo you hear so often these days. Oh, death is just a friend that we need to embrace. No, he's not. The grim reaper is our enemy. Oh, death is just a soft pillow on which to lay your head and take your final breath. Oh, death is just drifting off into eternal sleep. No, it's not. It's been pointed to man once to die, and after that, the judgment. When the renowned atheist Voltaire died, he screamed and shrieked for hours. It so terrified his nurse, she vowed that she would never attend the deathbed of an atheist for the rest of her life. We don't hear a lot about these kinds of reactions to death because we drug folks up in their final hours. But make no bones about it, death is a robber. It steals today's joys and tomorrow's hopes. We'll learn later in chapter 15 that Jesus has taken the sting out of death. Thankfully, it's lost some of its bite. As Christians, we can face death fearlessly, not because it's fearful, but because Jesus has won such a decisive victory. Yet death will always be our enemy. Well, verse 27 quotes Psalms 8, verse 6. For Jesus has put all things under His feet, and that includes death. You see, the ultimate goal of God's eternal plan for mankind is to bring all the universe under the authority of Jesus Christ. Then and only then will we be at real peace. Paul then addresses a technicality in the text. He doesn't want to create confusion about the nature and unity of God. And so he qualifies his quote of Psalm 8. He says, But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he he who put all things under him is accepted. Uh, The one entity in creation that will not end up under the authority of the Son of God is God the Father. Why? Well, the Son just doesn't rule over His Father. The Father takes the lead. And Jesus won't rule over His Father. The three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, are equal in nature and importance, but they are diverse in the roles that they play and the unique interactions they have with each other. Paul says in verse 28, For now when all things are made subject to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subject to Him who put all things under Him, that God may be all in all. See, even in the Godhead, there's a chain of command. The Father in Spirit exalt the Son, whereas in the end, the Son will bow to the will of the Father. And God will be all in all. He'll be perfectly united. The Godhead exists forever in this ordered equality. And then verse 29 is a puzzling passage. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead, if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Now remember the context of our passage. Paul is trying to prove the resurrection of the dead to people who were formerly entrenched in paganism. And there were pagan cults in Paul's day who practiced what we would call proxy baptism. Several of the early church fathers, Tertullian, Chrysostom, were two. They witnessed this practice in their day. People were baptized for dead kinfolk, thinking that the ritual would enhance their standing in the afterlife. 
It's interesting that there are cults today who, who do this same thing. They have this same practice. Mormons compile genealogies that identify their non-Mormon relatives. Then they get baptized in the place of their deceased family members, hoping it will accrue to the person some sort of credit in the afterlife. Some Mormons have been baptized thousands of times for this reason. Yet the Bible never warrants such an idea. Read again Paul's words carefully. He says, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? And why then are they baptized for the dead? Paul doesn't say us. He says they. The they meaning the pagans in Corinth. Proxy baptism was never a Christian practice. It was an aberrant ritual performed by pagans. But at least the practice indicated a belief in a physical resurrection. Why go to the trouble of being physically baptized for your cousin if you don't believe their physical body will one day benefit? See, Paul's point is this. In Corinth, if Corinth's heretical heathen can see the truth of the body's resurrection, then why can't their spirit fill believers? What's wrong with this church? In verse 30, another domino topples. If there's no resurrection of the body, then Paul says, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? In short, why am I constantly risking my life? Paul says, I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Every single day Paul woke up, he had a target on his back. There were people out to kill him. All because of his insistence on the resurrection. Think about this. All Paul would have had to do to call off the the dogs. All he would have had to do was take a little pinch of salt, toss it on that fire as he walked into the marketplace, and just mumble three words. He wouldn't even have had to say them out loud, real loud. Just mumble them. Caesar's Lord. Just throw that little pinch, that little sacrifice to Caesar. Caesar is Lord. That's all he would have had to do. And all his troubles, all his threats would have been over. But he couldn't. Because Jesus is Lord. And there was no denying the obvious. Jesus had risen from the dead. Paul continues. He says, if in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? Remember, Paul wrote this letter from Ephesus. And even in Ephesus, he had run into opposition and persecution because he preached Jesus' resurrection. He says he fought with beasts for the gospel's sake. That probably refers to evil men. Oh, but it's possible Paul could have been thrown to the lions a time or two. It's possible. Again, though, why in the world would Paul forfeit ease and comfort? Why would he have risked life and limb for a lie? If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is still dead. All Paul had endured would have been a waste of his one and only life. Without the resurrection, there would be no reward. Nothing of real value beyond this life without the resurrection. See, before Columbus discovered the new world, all the Spanish coins carried a picture of Hercules at the Straits of Gibraltar. And underneath the picture was the inscription, Ne plus ultra. Literally, nothing beyond. Oh, but after Columbus, the coins had to be changed. 
They were changed to plus ultra or something beyond. And here Paul is saying without the resurrection, all of life carries this insignia, nothing beyond. But with the resurrection, there is a beautiful something beyond. Paul even quotes a local expression that was being used among the pagans in Corinth. He says, If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Here's the final domino. If death is all there is, let's party, man. Let's pretend it's spring break and never come back. It's New Year's Eve every night. If all we have to look forward to is a rotting grave... Rotting in that grave, then life is nothing but a cruel joke. Why sacrifice earthly pleasures for eternal rewards if there's no eternity? If there's no forever, live for now. Of course, the reason some of the Corinthians had denied the resurrection is that they were listening to the wrong people. They were hanging out with the pagan crowd. And Paul writes to them in verse 33, he says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Evil company corrupts good habits. Timeless wisdom, I would say. You know, that's probably the first lesson you learn from your parents. It's also probably the first lesson you forgot. Hang with the wrong folks and you get hung up. Evil rubs off. Choose your friends wisely. You know, Paul could have added this verse to any chapter in this letter. This was why division and immorality and rebellion and a lack of love had drifted into their ranks. They were being influenced by the wrong people. Are you being influenced by the wrong people? Well, Paul encourages them. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. You know, you've heard the old saying, ignorance is bliss. Don't believe it. It's not true. What we don't know can hurt us. And these believers were ignorant. Reminds me of the man in Bristol, England. He drove down to the seashore and he dove head first off the local pier, 25 feet into the ocean. What he didn't realize was at the time the tide was heading out. And the water under him was a mere 18 inches deep. I'd say what he didn't know had a profound impact. Yet this even went deeper. In the Greek language, two words are used for ignorance. One word conveys a simple lack of knowledge, just being uneducated. But the other ignorance is the stubborn variety. It's ignorance that chooses to be uninformed in the face of the facts. It's like the man who holds up his King James Bible and he boasts, I read the version Paul read. When the King James Version wasn't commissioned until 1,500 years after Paul died. This is the kind of ignorance that says, Well, that's what my daddy's daddy believed and that's what my daddy believed and so that's what I'm going to believe. Even when there's evidence galore refuting your prejudice. This is the ignorance that insists nobody has really proven that cigarettes cause cancer. 
Well, then I'm not wearing a seatbelt because I heard somewhere that somebody wore a seatbelt and got hurt. This isn't ignorance that he, because he or she lacks evidence. This is ignorance in spite of the evidence. This is ignorance because of stubbornness and self-righteousness and just plain pride. And this is how Paul felt about the Corinthians when it came to the subject of the resurrection. It was so obvious to Paul that Jesus was alive, that there is a bodily resurrection. How could these believers in the church at Corinth be so blind? These people were locked into their pagan beliefs despite the domino effect that Paul had used to show them. You know, he seems to have used up all his reasons, and so he finally shouts, Awake to righteousness! And do not sin. Let's hope they heard. Let's hope we hear.